newer to navigating your Bible, just breathe out. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure you have enough time to get between these verses. And I thought about putting them on the screen. I know that's a thing we like to do sometimes, but I also like the idea of us kind of learning to navigate our Bibles, even if that's in a phone. Uh, I still like the idea of that. And so um, here's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the whole Bible. And then we'll end up in 2 Peter, which is kind of in between those two uh, places. So Matthew, then Revelation, and 2 Peter. Uh, and so we're in week four of this series. Today we're going to cover Jesus, our coming King. Uh, and so I just want to kind of walk us through a little bit of a review uh, that has gotten us here. And so this artwork that you see that we've had for the last number of weeks uh, is kind of our guiding, um, I guess, visuals for this series. So the fourfold gospel is something that is part of our alliance tradition, uh, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And so A.B. Simpson, uh, he has a book called The Fourfold Gospel. That's the founder of our denomination, our movement. And uh, you can, I actually don't have any more copies of the ones that I grabbed, but there's a modernized version of the Fourfold Gospel, which is pretty good. Pretty small, you could probably knock it out in maybe two sittings. Um, but that uh, artwork encapsulates the fourfold idea. And so we have Jesus as Savior, represented by the cross. We have Jesus, our sanctifier, represented by the laver, which is like a wash basin. Jesus, our healer, represented by the pitcher, sort of pouring out traditionally what would have been oil. Uh, and if you've ever been prayed for healing, we anoint with oil because we believe the scriptures teach that. And then today we're going to look at Jesus, our coming king or coming Lord is how uh, A.B. Simpson might have said it, but coming king seems to work better with our vernacular. And so that's the crown. Uh, if you are interested in sort of a uh, a, a brief overview of the fourfold gospel. I have a PDF that I can send you that's along with the same artwork that explains each one of these. It's pretty simple. Or I can print one out if you need that. Uh, but as I said, we're in uh, the fourth week, coming king. And so before we get to that, for the sake of really all of us, for my sake, and, and if you're just joining us maybe today or you missed a week, just a review. So week one, we talked about what it means that Jesus is our savior. And so with this idea, we sort of use two big words, theology words, to describe what happens when Jesus saves us. And those two ideas are justification and adoption. And so justification, we see uh, in, in a bunch of places, but in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, an example of that where God declares us perfect uh, because of the work of Jesus, which we have placed faith in. And so justification is when God declares us perfect. So to make it real uh, simple, like for a guy like me, it's baseball season. Justification is the umpire declaring it's a strike. All right? Uh, and so God, of course, on a much more important cosmic scale, declaring us justified even though we are guilty. Uh, so that's what happens when Jesus saves us. We're justified, but that's not the only thing that happens when Jesus saves us. Thank God for that, because this, this second part couldn't happen without that. But simultaneously, in the moment of salvation, when we place faith in Jesus, we are not only justified before God, taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the domain of his beloved son, but we are also adopted into God's family. We are given the legal right to become the children of God. And so that's also really important uh, to remember when we think about Jesus, our Savior. He has not only saved us from sin and death, but he has saved us into a family and into his kingdom, which he is coming to rule over, which is what we're going to get to this week. So that's week one. In week two, we covered the idea of sanctification. And here's just kind of a good working definition of sanctification. 
sanctification is simultaneously bringing what is good and true about me to life and killing my sin by Jesus' power and my grace-driven effort. So there's a difference between salvation and sanctification. And salvation, uh, justification and adoption, those happen in an instant. They are totally God's work. You did nothing to save yourself. You have nothing to boast in except the cross. But sanctification includes our effort and happens over time. It includes our effort. Jesus is ultimately our sanctifier, but it includes our effort and happens over time. We see that in Colossians 3, Hebrews 12, uh, to give just a couple examples. So justification, adoption, instant at the moment of faith, you're justified, adopted into God's family, but then over time, based partly on your effort and the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in your life, you become what God has already declared you to be in justification and adoption. And then lastly, uh, from last week, from two weeks ago, we talked about two main things that we need to grow in our sanctification. Those two things are community and honesty. We need those things to grow into what God has said that we are. Uh, and so we, we can't grow alone, right? God says uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Well, you're going to need to be around some other people to learn how to be patient, right? So you need community to grow into that. But you also need honesty. The scriptures we looked at said don't lie to one another. And we sort of defined that as don't, um, don't, don't play the I'm fine game. And I was talking to my wife about this. I remember that I said it means we don't put on a mask. And I just want to say that was no kind of statement about anything that's happened over the last couple of years. I just meant like, don't be fake is what I meant. But I realized afterward, oh, that has new meaning now. I should be careful with that. Uh, so what it means is don't act like you're okay when you're not. That means relationships. That means your spiritual walk. That means all of life. We don't lie to ourselves or to one another about where we actually are if we want to actually grow. It's a crazy game we play. We want to look holy instead of confessing sin, being honest, to actually get holy, right? To actually get to what we want to look like. It's a crazy game we play. And so then the last time we were together, we talked about the third thing, Jesus, our healer. A couple things I want to point out. There's two reasons we talked about that Jesus healed and does heal. Uh, when he was here in his earthly ministry, he healed to show that he is God. Uh, there's a few places where he says, so that you might know that I am the son of man, get up and walk. Right? So he heals to demonstrate his divinity. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's an important idea for us as Christians. But he also healed as a way to show that he is compassionate toward our suffering. So in Jesus, we see the image of God. And in Jesus, we see that he is compassionate towards our suffering. So compassionate that he steps into it with us. And over and over in the New Testament, in Jesus' ministry, in the Gospels, we see him being, uh, be feeling the emotion of compassion and healing. And so that's what we see when it comes to Jesus, our healer. And then we looked at three ways that God did heal and does heal. Uh, the first is one that we kind of overlook, which is just that God gives us the ability to sustain life by common grace. Right? Like medicine that we have is incredible. That was all God's grace to humanity. And wicked and righteous alike can participate in the goodness of God's grace by his medicine. Even little things like food, right, that sustain us. But then sometimes there's a greater healing that's needed, right? You, 
you, you can get an injury that won't just heal on its own. And so there are times that God did and does heal by what we might think of as signs and wonders, miraculous healings. Uh, we tend to not see those as often in the circles that we kind of run in, and there's a whole conversation about how faith is connected to that, uh, but we see healings happening right now in our world today. Uh, if you want to, you can go back and listen to, I read a couple stories uh, last week about healings that have happened, uh, and part of their purpose was that people would come to know Jesus. So healing by just common grace, God's creation, sustaining of life, healing kind of in that miraculous way that you see, but then there's this third uh, sort of idea that we talk about in the Alliance, which is the healing of the atonement, which is the healing that happens when Jesus saves us at the soul level. And so uh, this is the most important kind of healing because this is the one that takes place in our hearts when Jesus saves us, makes us right with God, adopts us into God's family. And so we said that this healing is that healing that takes place in our hearts as we learn to love the things of God more and more. And of course, all of these are overlapped, Right salvation, sanctification, healing, they all are kind of interplaying with one another. They're not uh, taking place independently. And so lastly, then from last week, we talked about God's instructions on healing, the instructions of the scriptures. Uh, now we want to be careful here because this isn't a prescription. You can't make God do what you want. He's not a genie. He's God and you're not. But he said, hey, are you sick? Get the elders of the church together and pray over you and anoint you with oil. And so as an act of obedience, we practice that. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you and we'll anoint you with oil. And if you're like freaked out by that, it's just a little bit of oil. It's just an act of obedience. Uh, it's not going to be a bucket of oil on your head. So I know some of us are like, Ugh. but it's not about that. It's about the obedience of it. And so here are some of the kind of instructions, if you will, or parameters or framework of how healing uh, is talked about in James 5 from last week. First of all, we need to ask, is anyone among you sick? Ask the elders to pray with you. The elders are not mind readers. We don't know if you're sick unless you tell and talk about it in community. Now, yes, we want to be checking on one another and that's happening, but the onus is on each one of us to ask and act in obedience. Secondly, what does he say? Is anyone among you sick? Get the elders of the church. So there's an assumption there that you're part of a community of faith that we might call a local church. So if you want to experience what God has for you, yes, the local church is part of the primary way that God makes that happen. And then third in that passage in James, we talk about confession of sin. Is anyone among you sick? Get the elders together, confess your sins, anoint with oil, pray. And so these things, uh, the, the, one of the ways to think about this is these things are us putting ourselves under the faucet, if you will, of God's healing. We, we're in community. We, we, we seek the church and we say, let's anoint with oil. Let's pray. Let me confess my sins. And if God chooses to heal, I'm, I'm ready for it. Right? I'm, I'm not putting a roadblock between me and the healing God might want to do in my life. And so we then talked about, to end, just an attitude of healing. If you know the story of the fiery furnace from the book of Daniel, I think this is a great framework for us as we think about God's work in the world, particularly as we think about healing uh, and his rescue, which is kind of what healing is a form of. This is the attitude. God is able to do it. I believe that he will do it, but even if he doesn't, I will worship him anyway. I will not bow to the idols of this world. 
And I think that's a fantastic framework for an attitude of healing that we want to see. So that's the first three weeks. This week, we're going to talk about Jesus, our coming Lord or our coming King. And here's three questions I just want to look at this morning. What should we do with end times predictions? Okay. And we're not going to talk about like conspiracy theories and lizard people today. So just breathe out. It's going to be fine. Okay. What should we do with end times predictions? Who is the real King Jesus who's coming back that we see in the scriptures? And then how should we live in light of those two truths? Okay, so first, what should we do with end times predictions? In Matthew 24, if you're there, Matthew 24, uh, starting in verse 32, Jesus gives this word picture. He teaches a lesson here. And he lays it out and gives us this really important sort of idea to, to kind of work with. Matthew 24, verse 32. 24, verse 32. He says this, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, this is pretty poignant because we're right there in the year, aren't we? My um, forsythia in my front yard is starting to put out the little yellow buds that it puts out, which I love. And so this is really, really poignant for us. Verse 33. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So let's, let's break this down a little bit, right? Jesus used an example of a fig tree. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree before, but I think the example can kind of uh, go to any plant that you might be familiar with, right? Uh, we understand how seasons change. By what? By, by just having our eyes open and looking around, right? So with seasons, we see this gradual little things that tell us that the seasons are changing, right? In the fall, the trees change color. But, but what's interesting about this is it's like right now the buds are starting to come out and it's still cold outside. I was outside for about three hours on Friday afternoon and it was cold. It was wet. It was miserable, but I was on a baseball field, so it was fun. Uh, but we see these gradual changes, right? We see little buds. We see, and then it's like you walk out one day and bam, it's summer, Right? We have that experience, especially in Maryland. Uh, and then sometimes for us, you walk out the next day and it's, oh, it's winter again. But you have that experience, right? You're like, it's gradual, gradual, gradual. And then you're like, oh, it's here. There it is. It's summer now. It's hot again. The, the trees are green. I got to mow the grass. All the things that have kind of led up to that moment, now, bam, there it is. And so this is what Jesus is saying here about when he's coming back. Look at verse 33. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. He's at the door. Like, he's, he's there. And so then, if you're like me, you read this, you're like, well, what are the, these things that Jesus mentions? Well, those are the things that he mentions in the verses right before the passage that we're looking at. So if you look up, you can see a bunch of stuff. And it's really important for you to know that, and I want you to go study that and dive deep down that hole and get some good commentaries and go there. But today we're not going to talk about those specific things. I want to challenge you to go and do that. But what's important for us today is to look at Jesus' words about trying to figure out when he's coming. Look at verse 36 to 39 and hear this. Hear this if you've ever watched like YouTube prophets, okay? Just hear these words from Jesus. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. No one knows. If somebody tells you they know, run from them. They don't know. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And notice, he doesn't say there's a code, you can figure it out. Right? He doesn't say any of that kind of stuff. 
He says, no one knows the day and hour. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, Noah's days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Right? They were just living regular life, doing the normal stuff that everybody does. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he says two things to us. You'll know when the return of Jesus is near like you know the changing of the seasons. You'll know that it's near like you know the changing of the seasons, but the actual moment of Jesus' return will be sudden and it will be unexpected. You'll know it's, it's getting close, but nobody knows the day and the hour. And so we're not supposed to be trying to figure out when the exact day is that Jesus is going to return. Don't waste your time doing that. Don't get caught up in moons and cycles of the sky and all that stuff. You don't know. But here's what we do need to know. We do need to know that we need to always be ready because he is returning and the hour is closer. We're closer now than when we walked in here this morning. We're going to be closer when we leave here, assuming he doesn't come back in the middle of this, which would be awesome for me. So all the stuff that you see online, right? I remember a number of years ago, it was like blood moons everywhere. Anybody remember that stuff? Oh, the blood moons and the events and, and nothing happened, Right? We, we can't take something like that and go, oh, this is it, the end of the world, right? As Christians, our job is to be aware of the signs, but also to know that we have no clue what the actual day is, so we need to just be ready. And by ready, we'll talk about at the end what that means. So don't, we shouldn't be wasting our time trying to predict the actual moment of Jesus' return. Be ready, but don't waste your time trying to predict the actual moment moment. So a question for us, do I maybe once in a while get caught up in trying to predict the end of the world? Do I find myself getting anxious over it? Like, oh no, right? Jesus said, hey, you're not going to know. Just be ready. Okay. So second thing we need to look at today is we need to be sure we understand who exactly this King Jesus is who is returning. Who is this King Jesus who's coming? He's not going to be a baby again. Now, our culture likes to make light of Jesus, right? We like certain kind of Jesus, depending on what circles you run in. Uh, we like to, for the most part, make him kind of a fairy tale figure. He's just kind of nice to everybody, never confronts us in our sin, never holds us accountable, right? Sprinkles like love dust on everyone. But that's not the picture that's painted for us in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Now, before I read this, let me just say this. This is a Ancient Near East apocalyptic literature. I don't understand everything in it, and you don't either. Okay, so let's read this for what it is. It's like poetry. It's apocalyptic literature. Don't read too concrete into this, but paint a picture for yourself with this text of who Jesus is. Okay, don't take everything literally. Here we go, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's jewels, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, 
And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Yikes, right? So, so yeah, that's who, that's who it is. So maybe you're like, that is scary, right? And I'm, it is. It is scary, it is apocalyptic, crazy literature to us. And here's what we see. Jesus is the just king of the universe who is going to come and judge the living and the dead. There is judgment coming. God loves you. He loves his creation. But from the beginning of our faith, we have said he is coming to judge the living and the dead. That is part of Christianity. The Jesus of the Bible is way more real and way more scary than we like to think. Now, remember back, though, from, from week one, we said that someone will pay the debt of our sin, either us or Jesus. And, and so this is why it's so incredible that Jesus would die for us. This Jesus, he's the king of everything. He doesn't have to do that for you or for me, but he will do it, and he has done it if you know and love him because he loves you so much that he just won't let us get what we deserve. You see, the Bible is clear that God hates sin. That's why it says that he will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Over and over in the scriptures, we see that God is filled with burning anger at sin. He is enraged by sin he hates sin because it destroys everything that he loves and god wants to stomp sin out right and that is kind of scary and it's a little bit graphic and we don't like that but the truth is that all that anger towards sin when we did not trust in jesus was pointed at us and we deserved it until by faith we trust in jesus and his Death on the cross steps in and takes all of that holy anger for us and absorbs us. You see, the cross is the same burning anger against sin that's played out in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see God angry with sin. In the New Testament, we see God angry with sin. And if you want to know how God feels about sin, if you want to know how much God hates and despises sin, you look to the cross. Because that is how God ultimately dealt with your sin and my sin so trust in him so that can be for you as well. And so as scary as the Jesus in Revelation is, I want you to get this. That's the same Jesus who loves you and is for you. 
and who you've been adopted into his family. So if that scary, awesome Jesus loves you enough to die for you, what do you have to be afraid of? You have nothing to fear. This confidence in Jesus then drives us in how we live now. This love that we've received from Jesus, which absorbs for us the wrath of God that we deserve, is what the Apostle Paul says now compels us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. To what? So let's go to 2 Peter and see how do we live in light of these two truths. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Peter says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. There's your identity. When you know and love Jesus, you are beloved. He says, the second letter I'm writing to you, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So he wants to remind us that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we see from these little verses here that Peter's talking to who? To Christians. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those who have been taught the things of God. So like a lot of us in this room, right? He says in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, right? Haters going to hate, scoffers going to scoff. That's what they do. Scoffers will come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? He's not coming. Come on, right? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. So people are going to come along and say, oh, please, nothing's going to change. It's just life's just going to go on. There's nothing out there. So here, here we see that it should be no surprise to us that people will make fun of us for being Christians. Yeah, expect it. Don't be surprised when trials show up in your life. That's the expectation. But we need to have compassion on those who would scoff at us, not scoff back. That's not our call. We, we don't return evil with evil. We repay evil with good. We have compassion on those who would scoff at us. Did you see why they scoff at us? They're following their own sinful desires. They are just as we all once were until someone told us about Jesus and Jesus by faith rescued us. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You were the same. You were scoffing. You were hostile in your mind towards God. So we must be compassionate towards those who would make, make a mockery of our faith for believing that Jesus will return. It does sound kind of crazy. The Bible says Jesus is returning out of the sky on a white horse in a robe dipped in blood. Yeah, that sounds crazy because it's apocalyptic literature, but that's what we believe, right? This is faith. And so we, we, we be compassionate towards those who would scoff at us for that, and we continually show Jesus to them through our words, by preaching the gospel, and by our deeds, by our life showing that Jesus has our allegiance above all. So we must be compassionate to those who mock our faith. 
Listen to verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So Peter's using two examples here to sort of make his point that God does do things in this world in creation. He talks about the creation and the flood of Noah as examples of when God interacts with this world. He's basically saying, if you want to act like God is not going to show up, you can do that. But look at what God has done before. And so he's writing to a group of people who are living in a culture that's doubting the fact that there's anything out beyond what we can see, which is pretty similar to, to where we find ourselves. And Christians are starting to find themselves in, in Peter's letters on the margins of their society getting pushed out, similar to where we find maybe ourselves. And so Peter is saying people will doubt God, but God is always going to do what he says he will do, so have compassion. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact. And he's going to remind you again, beloved, that's who you are, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but what? He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So this is the part where it's super important to remember who Peter is talking to in this letter. He's talking to Christians. So he tells us that God does not exist within time like we do. A thousand years is like a day to God, a day is like a thousand years. There's no future and past for God. He just is. Every container that you want to put God into, including time itself, he fills up and overflows and he just is. You have a past and a future, but God just is. And, and if that is too much for your mind, you're right, it is, because he's God. He, he's telling us that God is not limited to time like we are. And so when we think in some Christian traditions, they think, the coming of Jesus tomorrow. It's going to happen tomorrow. And then there's other traditions that think, eh, maybe it's going to be another 3,000 years. This is just the beginning of the church. Either way, Peter's reminding us that God doesn't exist in time like we exist. So because there's no future or past for God like there is for us, Peter reminds us it's not that God's being slow to return. No, he's being patient. But who's he being patient with? Notice, he's being patient with us, the church. Peter's writing to us, beloved, God is patient with you. Why? Because he wants everyone to reach repentance. So he's being patient with each one of us that we would usher in his kingdom here on earth with our words and with our deeds as we follow Jesus, our king, so that more people would reach repentance so God is being patient, waiting to see as many people as possible that he can pour his mercy out on. He's being patient with you to share your faith, to live in the kingdom of God even now uh, so that you would be a witness. He hasn't forgotten his promises. He's being patient with us because he wants everyone to receive repentance. Now, listen to, to Peter go on here in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, right? Unexpected. 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Here's the key for us. You want to walk out of here, how are we supposed to live, right? Francis Schaeffer's famous words, how then should we live? Peter's about to give it to you. Lives of holiness and godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the kingdom we wait for. So Peter continues this passage by again reminding us Jesus' return is real and it is going to come. It's going to be unexpected in the moment, but he gives us a great charge to think about as we go out from here this morning in verse 11. Since these things are true, right? It's Peter's assumption. These are true things. Jesus will return. We should be a holy, godly people who pursue Jesus and who even, and I don't know how this works in God's sovereignty, hasten the day of his returning. I have no idea how that works. He is sovereign, yes. Somehow we can affect that. It's beyond me. We can even quicken the day that Jesus comes back by the fact that we're constantly living into the gospel and speaking the gospel to those who are around us so they might come to repentance. And so we're to be a people who have our hopes set, not on this world, not on the politics of this world, not on the economy of this world, not on the relationships in this world. We have our hopes set not in this world, but on the promises that God has made to us, knowing that he is going to return. He is going to set all things right. He is going to make all things new. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth where there won't be anything but ever increasing joy in him. So how are we supposed to live? We are to be holy, godly, and expect it as we think about Jesus coming as our king. Let's pray. Jesus, we echo the, the words of those in the scriptures who say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We want you. We want your kingdom now. But at the same time, we know that you're being patient with us so that the people around us would come to repentance. So would you continue to give us, Holy Spirit, your empowering boldness that we would live lives that are godly and holy and expectant, so that we would be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. So that somehow we can hasten your coming. And so Jesus, we, we long for your coming, we ask for your coming, but at the same time, we want to make the most of every day that you've given us in this life to pull your kingdom into this world as you've given us breath to live here. And so we ask you again to give us strength as we go out from here to bless us as we uh, do our best to, to walk with you and to be filled with your spirit and to share you with other people through word and through deed. And we pray all this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.